Well, many of you know that Marty is not here today. He's moving his daughter to Scotland where she'll be studying, and Marty will be back with us next Sunday. But the good news is that I'm not preaching, so you don't have to listen to me. We're delighted to have Dr. Gerald Harris with us, who's bringing God's Word, and you want to hear every word that he says today. It's a powerful message that he will bring us. Uh, Dr. Harris has served Georgia Baptist and, well, Mississippi Baptist. Where, where did he go? I can't see because of the lights. There he is over there. Uh, I was, you scared me. I didn't know you were, I thought maybe you had left. Um, in Mississippi, I didn't realize you were, anyway, uh, he's been a servant of the Lord in several different churches and uh, in the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, and uh, we're honored to have him today. He told me the only thing I need to say about him is that he has 13 grandchildren. Wow, I mean, that's, that's a lot, Right and two great-grandchildren, and another one on the way. So, but the biggest thing is that all 13 of his grandchildren know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and are walking with him daily. So we are delighted to have him. He, uh, his wife, Martha Jean, is with him today, so you'll want to meet them after worship. So Dr. Harris, come and bring God's Word. Brother Tom, uh, I like that last song, Lord, do ever what you want to do, and I will make room for you. This is my surrender. You sang that. If you meant it, I don't know that I need to preach, but I'm going to anyway. I was a pastor for 41 years. Before I came the editor of the Christian Index, which, by the way, is the oldest continuously published religious newspaper in America. And when I became the editor of a newspaper, I quit hearing jokes about preachers, and I began to hear jokes about newspaper editors and journalists. And I heard about this uh, young man who graduated from college with a degree in journalism, and he found a job in this small-town newspaper writing obituary columns and the social news. And that was not very rewarding to him, and he hoped that one day he might be able to write an important story that would appear in syndicated newspapers or perhaps in some publication like the Chicago Tribune or the New York Times. But he was getting absolutely nowhere. But one day, the dam above the town burst and flooded the town with water. He thought, this is going to be my opportunity to write a story that will hit big time and make me famous. He found a boat, and he began to paddle around in the boat. And the water was up to the awnings of houses. And as he paddled around town, he happened to see a woman sitting on her roof next to a chimney. He decided to paddle up to where her house was and climb up on the roof and sit down beside her and explain to her what he was looking for, an important story. And as they sat there talking, it was not long until the headboard of a bed floated by. And she said, now there's your story right there. He said, no, no, that's not a story. 
Not long after that, there was the pulpit furniture from the Episcopal Church that floated by. And she said, now there's a story. He said, no, 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 that's not what I'm looking for. Not long after that, there was a hat that floated by. The hat made an 180-degree turn and floated upstream. Made another 180-degree turn, floated downstream. Another 180-degree turn and floated upstream again. He said, now that's a story. She said, no, that's not a story. That's my husband, Hayford. He said he was going to cut the grass today come hell or high water. <laughs> now that is surrender. That is dedication. But it's good to be here with you. I love Paul Baxter. He and I have been friends for a long time. One of your former pastors and Marty Carnes and I have been friends for probably 25 years. I've known him when he was just a college student and I preached for him two revivals when he was at First Baptist Church of Quitman and then I preached for him when he was at First Baptist Church of Thomasville. I was preaching two weeks ago in chapel at Truett McConnell University and we connected once again and he invited me to come and preach today and I'm delighted to be here with you. I want to preach this morning on the raising of Lazarus. It's a very familiar story that's found in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11. But there's another passage that I want to read as well, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So there are two places where I want you to uh, find passages of Scripture. The first one here in John chapter uh, 11 tells the story of Jesus being notified that his friend Lazarus was sick. And we're told that he stayed for several days in the same place before he was, before he began to make his way to Bethany, where Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. Unfortunately, by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had died and had been dead four days. So we're going to break into the middle of the narrative and begin reading here in verse 38. This is what it says. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe thou would see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Now over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have another passage, and I want to try to harmonize these two passages of Scripture. 
So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in uh, verse 14. And I want you to remember three words in this passage. If you have your Bible, you can underline these words. But the natural man, the first word is natural. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual, that's the second word, underlined spiritual. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of Christ, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In chapter 3 it says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. There's the third word, underlined carnal. Even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk, not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able, for you are yet carnal. And we'll stop right there. But I want you to remember these three words in this order. The natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. Would you join with me in a moment of prayer? Father in heaven, you've been so good to us. We've appreciated the worship service thus far. And now as we look into your word, we pray that it will come alive to us. Take on perhaps even new, fresh meanings. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to appropriate it to our hearts. And help us to have the spirit of yieldedness and surrender that we heard about in the song. So that when we leave this place, we'll not just be moved, but changed by the power of God. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So far as we know, there were three people that Jesus raised from the dead. First of all, there was the daughter of Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. His daughter became ill, and he went to visit with Jesus and asked Jesus if he would come quickly to his house to heal his precious daughter. Jesus began to move toward the house of Jairus, but there was a great press of people there and people that needed to be healed on the way. So he was later than had anticipated, but he got there. Maybe he was an hour late. Maybe he was two hours late. But by the time he got there, the little girl had died. I don't think she could have been dead long. I have an idea that she may have still had the blush of life in her cheeks. But the Bible says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, and the mother of the father of the maiden went into the room where the little girl was lying lifeless on her bed and Jesus raised the girl from the dead. It was an amazing miracle. On another occasion, Jesus went into the village of Nain with some of his disciples. And as he was going into the village, there was another procession coming out of the village. So the procession of life represented by Jesus encountered a procession of death. Because the widow's son had died, presumably that night before or during the day. You see, they tried to bury people in Israel the day they died, if possible, because they didn't have 
sophisticated means of embalming like they had, for example, in Egypt. And so here was a young man who'd been dead for the better part of a day, and yet Jesus raised him from the dead. Can you imagine what the pallbearers thought when he sat up in his casket? But when it comes to Lazarus, it's not like the little girl who'd been dead for an hour or less, nor like the young man from Nain who'd been dead for the better part of a day. Lazarus had been dead four days. There was a stench coming from the tomb. Decomposition had set in. The cells of his body had begun to decay. His blood had coagulated. He was well, he was as dead as a government job at 4 o'clock. But Jesus raised him from the dead. Herbert Lockyer says it's probably the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. So first of all, I want us to think about dead Lazarus. Dead Lazarus represents the natural man. In the Bible, the natural man is referred to as the unsaved man, the unredeemed individual, the lost person. For example, when Paul wrote Timothy, he said, She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she lives. When he wrote the church in Ephesus, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus, on one occasion, said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. When the father welcomed the prodigal son back home, he said, this is my son who was dead and now is alive. So in the Bible, it's very clear that the lost person or the natural individual is referred to as being dead. Now, what are the characteristics of someone who's dead? There are three characteristics I want to mention. Number one, a dead person has no appetite. <laughs> when Lazarus was alive, I have an idea that he had a hearty appetite. He had two sisters. We know that one of them could cook. Because on one occasion, Jesus was visiting in their home, and Mary had come to sit at the feet of Jesus to listen to every word that he had to say. Martha, on the other hand, was in the kitchen preparing for the evening meal. And there apparently were a number of guests going to be there that evening. And so she came rushing into where Mary and Jesus were. And she said to Mary, or she said to Mary, Mary, you've got to come and help me because I've got a lot of responsibility this evening. Come help me in the kitchen. And Jesus rebuked. Martha. He said, Martha, you're troubled about so many things, but Mary has chosen the better part. And obviously there's nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus, but I sympathize with Martha. My wife, Martha Jean, is here today, and so I like it when my Martha is in the kitchen stirring up something for supper. And you know, I believe that Lazarus enjoyed putting his feet under Martha's table. He could smell the wonderful aroma that came from her kitchen. He was interested in the dinner menu. But you know something? Once he died, he had absolutely no appetite. People who are lost, people who are without Christ, have no appetite for the things of God. 
That's why they're not here today. Most of the lost people in this world are not in church. They're out doing their thing in the world. But you know, it's possible for some lost people to be in church as well. And if you are here today and you have no appetite for spiritual things, it may be that you're lost. Because you see, if a person is really a Christian, he's going to hunger and thirst for the things of God. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. David said, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. He also said, Thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. So if you're a Christian, you're going to hunger and thirst for the things of God. But if you have no interest in prayer, if you have no interest in Bible study, it could be that you're lost. Someone said, These hath God parted. And uh, these hath God married, and no man shall part, dust in the Bible, and death in the heart. Do you have a real hunger for God? Do you have an appetite for spiritual things? Do you look forward to Sunday morning more than any other time in the week? Do you look forward to your personal devotional life more than anything else in the week? So if you're a person with no appetite for spiritual things, it could be that you're dead. Here's another characteristic of someone who's dead. Not only no appetite, but also no activity. When Lazarus was alive, I'm sure that he was very active in the community. He may have been active financially, um, professionally, socially, in many ways. But once he died... There was no activity. Rigor mortis had set in, and he was lying cold stone dead on a marble slab in a tomb. And you know, there are people who even come to church who are not investing any activity in the Lord's work. They have no appetite for the sort of activity that is spiritual. We're told that in most churches, about 25% of the people do 90% of the work. That means 75% of the people in the church only do 10% of the work. It's like a football game over at Auburn or over at Athens in the fall of the year where you have 90,000 people who are in need of exercise watching 22 people who are in need of rest. It's a good thing when people in the church roll up their sleeves and go to work. I had a man in my last church at Eastside Baptist in Marietta, Georgia, who had tickets, season tickets to the Hawks, the Falcons, the, uh, at that time, the hockey team, and to the Braves. He coached Little League ball. He was a member of several civic clubs, but I could not get him to do anything in the life of the church. He had no appetite for the sort of things that were spiritual. And when you have no appetite or no interest in spiritual things, it's a sign of death. Another characteristic of death is no awareness. You know, you try to talk to a lost man about spiritual things and he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. In this text it says, The natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
You know, we're a lot like the Capernaumites. Jesus did many of his works in Capernaum. That's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law, the nobleman's son, the paralytic, the centurion's servant. It's where he called Matthew and several of the fishermen disciples. It's where he gave his great discourse on the bread of life. But, you know, they basically didn't even know who he was in Capernaum. They didn't kick him out of the city like they did in his hometown of Nazareth. They didn't crucify him like they did in Jerusalem. They just gave him the cold shoulder because they didn't know who he was. You know, that's one of the marks of death. If you don't, if you don't connect with spiritual realities, if you don't rejoice when someone is saved and baptized, if you don't rejoice when you hear about great experiences for God on the mission field, if you don't long to see revival in the nation, if you're not aware of these spiritual things, it may mean that you're dead, a natural man, a natural woman. So, so what does someone who's dead spiritually need? First of all, let me tell you what he doesn't need. Number one, he doesn't need an education. I mean, if you educate a lost man, all you make out of him is a clever devil. I mean, here's Lazarus lying in the tomb. Let's say we get a physician to come and educate him on the functions of the body. And he comes and talks to him about the circulatory system and the cardiovascular system and uh, uh, talk to him about the function of the lung and the kidneys and the, and the pancreas and the heart, and gives him all kinds of information on anatomy and physiology. Is that going to cause a dead man to live? No, it's not a matter of education. Somebody says, well, it's a matter of environment. I mean, you don't expect anybody to be anything but dead in the cemetery. Let's get him out of the cemetery and take him to a sports bar like Dave and Buster's. He got loud music, got video games, you got crisp conversation, you got food and drink. A lot going on. But is that going to help somebody who's dead? No. So if it's not a matter of education and environment, somebody says it's a matter of an example. He just needs an example of somebody who's really alive. So we get the rock, Dwayne Johnson. And he goes in there and he says, all right, now, Lazarus, I'm going to give you a demonstration on weightlifting. I'm going to do curls. I'm going to do bench presses. I'm going to do uh, all these exercises. Is that going to help somebody who's dead? No. It's not a matter of education, environment, or example. Somebody says, well, it's just a matter of encouragement. He needs encouragement. So we get the cheerleaders from Bethany High School, and they come with their little short dresses and their pom-poms. And they go in there to where Lazarus is, and they said, all right, Lazarus, two bits, four bits, six bits a dollar. Come on, Lazarus, stand up and holler. Is that going to help somebody who's dead? No. A dead man needs one thing. If he's spiritually dead, he needs life that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. If you happen to be here this morning and you identify as a person who is spiritually uh, unaware, who's spiritually inactive, who spiritually has no appetite for the things of God, come to Jesus Christ. He's the life. 
He will bring you out of death into a new, vibrant, exciting, spiritual life that will last for eternity. So here's dead Lazarus representing the natural man. Jesus recognizes the plight, and so he says, Lazarus, come forth. I believe that Jesus spoke with such authority. If he had not called Lazarus by name, every dead person in that cemetery would have come bursting out of the grave. But he specified Lazarus. And I think Lazarus must have come out of the grave like this. Because he's wrapped up in long strands of linen cloth. He can't walk. He can't work. He can't witness. He's not dead, but he's defeated. And defeated Lazarus represents the carnal man. Now, the carnal man is the person who is a Christian. I've got two definitions for him. Number one, he's the Christian who has not grown in his faith. He's still walking about in the swaddling clothes of an infantile faith. What would you... What would you think about a woman who gave birth to a child in LaGrange today and the child weighed seven pounds and one ounce? Six months from now, the child still weighed seven pounds and one ounce. Two years from now, the child still weighed seven pounds and one ounce. You'd say horror of horrors. It's not supposed to be that way. And it's not supposed to be that way for a Christian. The Bible says we're to grow in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Some of you may have been Christians 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you're still walking about in the swaddling clothes of an infantile faith because you've not grown. You're still a baby Christian. It's not supposed to be that way. That's one definition of carnality. Here's another definition. Carnality is a Christian who has lapsed into a momentary season of sin. I say it like this. A lost person will leap into sin and love it. But a saved person will lapse into sin and loathe it or hate it. In other words, if you can look at pornography and continue to do that and not get guilty about it and repent of that, you are probably lost. But if you lapse into it for a day or two and you realize that you're wrong and you confess your sins and you get out of that, it's probably an indication that you're saved. If you're a gossip and you just continue to do that, or if you're a liar and you continue to lie, it's probably an indication that you're not saved at all. But if you're convicted of your sins and you turn from those sins and you're wanting to get right with God, it's probably an idea that, uh, probably an example of the fact that you're just a a carnal Christian. So there have been times in my life when I've gotten real carnal myself, and it's embarrassing for a Baptist preacher to say that. We lived in Jackson, Mississippi when I was pastor of Colonial Heights Baptist Church. We have three children. We have twin sons who are identical. All of our children were teenagers during part of the time that we were there. And our boys were involved in sports. And it was basketball season. They were playing on a high school team and they were competing with another team in Jackson for a place in a tournament our son John was number 34 our son Jerry was number 35 and remember they look almost almost identically alike and near the end of the game which was a closely fought game 
just a few points difference in the score. An opposing player stole the ball, headed down the court for a basket, and John, who had four fouls on him, caught up with him and tried to block the shot but hit the player's hand. And the referee blew the whistle and turned to the scorer's table and said, that's a foul on number. And when he turned around, Jerry had took John's place. Jerry is number 35, only got two fouls on him and holds up his hand. It's the most remarkable, wonderful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I said, yes! And my wife elbowed me and said, you hypocrite. How can you possibly endorse that kind of deceptive behavior? Well, I looked around. There were a lot of people there that knew I was the pastor of the church. And they were looking at me with disdain. Well, that was a Friday night on Sunday morning. I had to apologize to the congregation because I realized when I celebrated something that was wrong that people could have thought, if that's what he teaches at Colonial Heights Baptist Church, I don't need to go there. Or worse, they could have said, if that's what the Christian life is all about, I don't need it. Maybe there's been a time when somebody's observed you in your worst moment they concluded if that's what Christianity is about, they don't need it. Sometimes we can just drift into carnality. Heard about this little boy who had a, a, a mutt. I call it a Heinz 57 variety dog. And he wanted to enter it into a dog show. And on Saturday morning in the county seat park, there was a reviewing stand with judges and people were parading their dogs in front of the judges and every dog seemed to be a perfect replica of that particular breed. I mean, there was a marvelously manicured French poodle. There was a stately Boston Terrier. There was a well-groomed Irish setter. And the judges were looking at these dogs and admiring these dogs and giving them grades. They're all registered by the American Kennel Club. But then this little boy came by with his mutt. And one of the judges says, what kind of a dog is that? The little boy said, well, that's a German police dog. The judges said, wait, that, that doesn't look like a German police dog. The little boy said, well, that's because he's in the Secret Service. You see, if you're a Christian, you need to stand out in this dark world like a diamond in a coal mine. The people in your neighborhood, the people where you work, the people where you go to school, the people that you occasionally encounter at the grocery store, the barbershop, or the beauty salon, they need to know beyond any shadow of doubt that you're different from the average run-of-the-mill person in this world because you're saved and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shines through you. Don't be a carnal Christian. Well, Jesus saw the dilemma because here's Lazarus all bound up as he was, and he says to the disciples, loose him and let him go. They unwind all the grave clothes, and now... He can walk. The Bible says we've been raised up to walk in a newness of life. He can work. The Bible says, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all your might. He can speak. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now he is a walking, working, witnessing individual. He doesn't represent the 
natural man anymore. He doesn't represent the carnal man anymore. He represents the spiritual man. In fact, he's not dead. He's not defeated. He's dangerous. Look in chapter 12 of John. I want you to see these verses, beginning in verse Beginning in verse 9, look at what it says. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. The news had traveled all over Jerusalem and beyond that Jesus had raised a man from the dead who'd been dead for four days. He was a trophy of God's grace. They wanted to see him. Not just Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. Look in the next verse. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Now they're already planning to kill Jesus. And now they want to put Lazarus in the mix. You're going to kill both of them because they're both bringing glory to God. They represent the spiritual man. And look at the next verse. It says, because that by reason of him, because of Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Has anybody observed your life recently and became so attracted to Christianity that they wanted to be saved? I say that Lazarus became dangerous because he was the devil's worst nightmare. He wanted to keep everybody in spiritual bondage, but now Lazarus was living such a dynamic life, such a positive Christian witness that people were coming to faith in Christ in a remarkable way. So every one of us here has an opportunity to decide whether we want to be dead, defeated, or dangerous. I hope you'll choose being that dangerous, spirit-filled individual who becomes the devil's worst nightmare. Let's bow together for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that each of us right now will identify ourselves. And there may be some here this morning who would honestly have to admit, Lord, I guess I'm dead because I, I really don't have a great appetite for spiritual things. I'm more interested in sports. I'm more interested in finances. I'm more interested in my business. I'm more interested in relationships on this earth. I'm not investing any activity in spiritual things. I'm not even aware of a lot of spiritual things. Sometimes the sermon goes over me like water on a duck's back. And so, Lord, if I'm dead, help me to have the courage to confess you as my Savior and Lord. Help me to have the courage to repent of the things that I've done, the things that I've thought, the things that I've left undone. And help me to be a Christian. For those of us who've been carnal at some point in time, perhaps we need to just repent of our sins and ask God to help us be surrendered believers. If you're a spiritual person, I want you to share your faith with others. Not ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
to stand up, to be an example of righteousness and godliness in this dark world. Lord, help us right now to identify ourselves. And I pray, Father, that you'd have your way in our hearts, that this would be a monumental moment in our lives as we make those commitments to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Some of the staff of the church, some of the pastors will be here. If you need to come and just ask them to pray for you, if you need to come and tell them that you want to be the spiritual person and you want them to help hold you accountable, you come and let them know. Obviously, you can make decisions right there where you are, but sometimes it just seals it and settles it when you come forward and you're unafraid and unashamed to make that kind of commitment. There may be somebody who wants to come and unite with this wonderful church from some other church, either in town or somewhere, somewhere else. Just say, God, what would you have me to do? And obey Him. Now, let's stand together. We're going to hear the hymn of invitation, and you come if God has spoken to your heart. Single adults, married couples, boys and girls, teenagers, you come. Just obey God.